Heidi, appreciate that. Romans chapter number one. If you join me there, Romans chapter number one. Brother Doug's going to make his way down the middle aisle here. If you need an outline, we'd like for you to be able to follow along with us. If you don't have a prayer bulletin, it's certainly on the back there. We'd love for you to join us uh, as we follow through. Romans chapter number one is where we're at. And uh, Romans chapter number one. Couple down through verse 20, if you remember, and uh, we'll kind of just quickly uh, cover this. We kind of went over these things. God has given revelation that leaves every person without excuse. We've established that, verse 20, in the verses prior, 19 and 20, that within man and then without man, we see that there below, uh, that God has revealed himself so that they are indeed without excuse. Then last week, we finished off with saying, uh, or finished that thought off with the fact of what is revealed. Well, it was God's eternal power. Power and his Godhead. The fact that it took limitless power to create life and faithful power to sustain it. And then the reality of God's, uh, his Godhead, as described here in verse number 20, the basic nature and structure of creation reveal the headship of God while also revealing the aspects of his nature. So much can be learned about God just simply through creation, much about his eternal power and his Godhead. And then we came to this takeaway, if you remember, uh, there is convincing and convicting testimony for God within man and without all creation that renders no human beyond the range and power of that testimony. Great truth, a conviction that you and I need to have based on Romans chapter 1 and other scripture that this is true, that no, no one is beyond the conviction of these truths. Then we saw this, we added this second kind of takeaway to it. It is the, the testimony found within a person without creation that calls every person to begin the journey of seeking after God. So creation, uh, it, it propels us, it cajoles us, uh, what's inside moves us, persuades us to start the journey of seeking after God. And as we have said time and time again in our study of Romans 1, if you seek me, you shall find me, the Bible says, God says. And we made this last statement, to not do so is not the act of an ignorant mind, but rather the act of a determined will. I'd like to use this kind of illustration analogy. Let's say we were going to uh, all go in a caravan and we were going to head down to the Detroit Zoo, okay? I don't know much about it, haven't been there. I do know this, it's in Detroit, okay? So I got that much down and so we're going to just take off. We're going to go. What if on our journey we have some people who decide they get down to Lapeer and they've already had enough of the journey and they stop in Lapeer? And let's say we're going down 24, and then we hit Lake Orion. Some people get off there. And then Oxford, we, 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 some people just stop and forget this. We're just going to, we're going to be done here. Some get down to Auburn maybe, okay? And they, they get off there and then farther on down and whatever the case may be, those who know that part better than I, you know down there. And they just get sidetracked left and right, okay? Now think about it. Everybody will start the journey. Everybody stopped and got off at different spots, but none of them made it. And so it is true with revelation. In other words, this th- we have to understand that in, with mankind, here's the facts. There are some people who are going to believe certain things. They're going to believe, number one, uh, they may not even get on the journey in a sense. I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe that uh, there's anything outside of us in the universe. What do we call those people? Those are atheists. Atheists. They don't believe in God. They, they don't believe that there's anything outside of mankind, the universe, and so forth. So, uh, atheists. Well, there might be another person who says, okay, wait, there could be a God out there, and there might be, but we don't know about him. We don't know his nature. We don't know anything of who he is. And so those persons are called agnostics. 
They don't necessarily say there is no God. They just don't say, they just say we can't know. We have no idea, uh, if there is a God, if there is one, what his nature is, and, and we just don't really know. We, we don't really have an idea. One has stated an agnostic is a person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God. Then you might say, okay, another group that has that believes some revelation. So as we understand it, here's the atheist. They really don't believe any revelation. They deny it. They say, no, thank you. Agnostic might say, okay, well, it would indicate from creation that there is some God, some supreme being, but we can't know him. So in essence, here's a person who's gotten a little farther with revelation, but then got off. Then you have a person who we might describe as a skeptic. Certainly an atheist, an agnostic, might fall under the terminology of a skeptic. But let's just say a skeptic, uh, he says, okay, well, I hear what you say, but I don't know if I can grab this, and I don't know if I can wrap my mind around this. I don't think I can embrace this. It's a person who doesn't, frankly, he doubts everything. Uh, and he may say, yeah, well, I can see where you think there's a God, but he just doubts a little bit more here and there. And so skeptics are all along the way. Skeptic might say this. Well, I believe there is a God, and and I believe that you know that. that have you ever heard this? Here's a good here's a good illustration of a type of skeptic. Okay, uh, you, you talk to a person who says, "Yeah, I believe there's a God, but I, I just don't see how a loving God could send people to hell." We've dealt with that before. Okay, so there is a skeptic of saying, "Well, I can't get to know him, and I, I, I just can't believe he would do that." And so, I mean, and a skeptic could be anywhere along thing. A skeptic might be somebody who doesn't believe in hell. A whole lot of that, even some in Christian churches that don't believe there's a place called hell. So uh, we certainly have what we might a skeptic. Then we certainly have another group that missed out on the full end of the journey. Uh, they would be somebody who we might call a theist. A theist. A theist believes in God, but they fail to acknowledge the God of the Bible as the creator, as the one with whom we can have a personal relationship, and they do not acknowledge their need for deliverance, their need for salvation, and so uh, they have gotten farther down the road. In our analogy, you know where they're at? They're probably in Auburn. <laughs> they're getting down the road, but they're not quite there. Then who do we have? Well, we, get, we, we have the people who got to the zoo and get to see the elephant. Those who believe that there is a God, they believe you can know that God, and they believe that they are in need of a Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. And they come to put their faith and trust in Him. Now listen to me, listen to me carefully. The whole point of God's revelation from the beginning, i.e. from creation and what is within us, is that every step of the way, all along the journey, we would start believing God. Take him at his word. And as more revelation is given to us, as we seek him and we find him, we would take the next step. We wouldn't get off to the left and we wouldn't get off to the right. Because you know what happens when we get off to the left and when we get off to the right, then these things come to bear that we see before us in Romans chapter 1. Here is what we describe it as the indictment of God against mankind. We saw it in verse 20, if you will, 21. It says this, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. So we saw letter A and letter B. They refused to glorify and honor him as God. They refused to thank him for being God, for being my creator. The one who gave me life. The one who gives life sustains us, as we said, the eternal power. Then we came down to the rest of the verse, verse 21, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 
And you see letter C here. We, we began talking and left off talking of this. They refuse rational thinking, but rather certain foolish uh, entertain, excuse me, entertain foolish and empty thoughts. Remember the statement. I didn't put it up on the, uh, uh, the overhead here, but remember the statement from last week. We said this, if one rejects God, which is both the author of the universe and its greatest reality, and refuses to employ the, the, the obvious rational logic that God alone is the one that gives life in this universe meaning, purpose, and understanding, and that person is doomed to foolish thinking and reasoning, embarking upon a search for wisdom and understanding that is pure folly. We accentuated that or we showed it and exemplified it a little bit last week as we talked about Stephen Hawking and gave some illustrations of what he said. And yet Paul himself expands on this folly. So not only are we going to have a search for wisdom and understanding that's pure folly, but the fallout goes farther. I want you to understand something that Romans chapter 1 and really the whole scriptures establish is this truth. We need to understand that spiritual darkness and moral perversity um, are inseparable, are inseparable. So spiritual darkness. Now, remember, we read this here just a second. Their foolish heart was what? Darkened, darkened, spiritual darkness. And my friend, spiritual darkness is inseparable from the reality of moral, moral perversity. Notice it. We know this. If you don't think right, you're not going to live right. So, uh, basic truths. I mean, you deny the truth in your thinking, and you will deny the truth in your living. The mind that is devoid of the truth of God has no means. Now, here's something that we see played out in sc- uh, uh, culture all the time. The mind that, that is devoid of the truth of God has lost out on all means of discretion. N- isn't discretion really needed today? I mean, you and I need it all the time. I need it daily, don't you? What to allow in our eye gate and our ear gate and what we're allowed to, uh, to meditate on and think about, we need discretion. But if you do not have the truth of God, you're devoid of discretion. Uh, I can't help. I, as I'm reading this chapter, it's funny how the news just gives you things. You know? Um, I, I just, I mean, it, it's crazy, you know. Uh, for instance, we're, obviously the moral depravity, the perversity that plays out in this chapter, we see homosexuality, we see all kinds of things. And just, just this week, I think it was, there's two articles about one person who wanted to marry an animal. We've talked about this before. Then there's another one, the lady wanted to marry a tree. Hundred-year-old tree, she wanted to save it. Whatever. Okay. Uh, I mean, you think, and we've seen those articles before. I mean, just perversity and, I mean, bestiality, the Bible uh, speaks to it, talks of it. Um, Think of it. Listen, if you don't have God's truth, moral depravity and everything's going to be at its greatest. And that's what Paul establishes here. A person without the truth of God. Now, and, and what they have done in Romans chapter 1, what we do when we reject God, you not only reject God as the person, but you reject God's truth. And once you don't have God's truth, then you, you certainly um, can't discriminate what is truth and what is error. You can't discriminate what is right and wrong. You can't differentiate between that which is temporal and that which is eternal, that which is true, and that which is a lie. And if you'll notice verse 25, 
he accuses them. Here's part of the indictment who changed the truth of God into a lie. Into a lie. And so, this is what has played out down through the ages in the history of mankind. Man's unbelief has led to unthankfulness. It's led to a foolish mindset that is void of God and void of truth. And yet, what does man profess to be? Extremely wise. Intelligent. He has touted his own falsehood in pride, thereby darkening his own heart, adding to it, if we might put it this way. Hold your spot here. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Paul gives us a great little passage here about man and his wisdom and who he thinks he is and how wise he thinks he is and what God has to say about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse number 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, what is it? The power of God. Amen? For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? I haven't studied it out. I'm not sure 100% what that phrase means, but it sure sounds like maybe we're talking about some scientists, huh? Disputer of this world. Maybe the one who disputes about this world. It could just reference someone who argues and fights and everything else and wants to question everything. The skeptic. But boy, it sure would lend itself to being someone who wants to push evolution, right? A dispute about the origins of the world. Nonetheless, he goes on. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Great indictment here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 of those who think they're wise in this world. Think of it this way, and uh, as we think of maybe an illustration. Do you remember when you were in school, and at the end of a semester or a unit, you had a big unit test, a big semester test, and it was over all chapters or a bunch of chapters uh, that you covered the semester? Do you remember ever getting in there and starting to uh, take that test, and you had information overload? Where all those facts just start around and you're like, I have it in there, but I'm not sure which one applies where and how, that, how it all comes out. Can I tell you, the reality is this. Satan has done a great, masterful job of information overload. And most of it is false. From every denomination that's false, every cult, every false philosophy and theory, uh, there's too much information, honestly, bouncing around in some people's head. Has anybody ever told you, there have been many a, a person that's told me this, they just don't know what to believe anymore. You ever hear that? I just don't know what to believe anymore. I, I just don't know what to believe. Well, part of that is because Satan has muddied the water. He's tried to throw as much at people. And can I tell you one of the worst things that has happened? The Internet. The Internet. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Googling. Find all kinds of things Googling. But it has been one of the worst mechanisms for the dissemination of error. To get out false things, false teaching. Everybody who has a theory can throw it out there. They can have a blog on anything. You know, it's funny, there was a couple NBA players <laughs> who obviously should not talk about things of intelligence normally. Um, they said just uh, this past year, you know what they said? Well, they decided they're part of the group that believes the world is still flat. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see them 
play with a flat ball. But anyway, uh, NBA players who thought, and literally, in interviews and things, they're saying, and literally, like, there's more people who believe that. I think it's a great conspiracy. I mean, Internet was a great breeding ground for conspiracies too, isn't it? You think about it, that Internet, obviously, people too, it can all be spread. But that's exactly what Satan wants. Information overload so that people are befuddled and have no idea, well, where is the truth in all of this? I sure am thankful that you and I have God's Word. And we live in a country where we can read it and we can have the truth and we can have discretion and we can differentiate between truth and error. You know, and yet there is some, <laughs> there are, there are some students. You remember this? I, I remember being, uh, teaching all different levels. I remember once in a high school th- teaching, uh, world history, I think it was. Um, world history. I remember one student came in and it was a pretty big test. I think it was a unit test or something like that. And I remember, and, and they were really confident. Oh yeah, I've been studying all week, you know, and, and coming, and they sit down and I saw the blood drain from their face. That was the first indication something was wrong. And I remember them looking up with puppy dog eyes and saying, oh, I studied the wrong chapters. Oh, good luck. <laughs> Hope you do well. I, I don't know what to tell you. You had it and we signed it. It was on the board. I, I, you, good luck. You, maybe you had that kind of situation before where you got in and you studied the wrong thing. You know what's sad is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 1. It's going to be a whole bunch of people who get, in, get before God and they've studied the wrong thing. They've studied their own wisdom. They've studied the wisdom of this world. And they're going to get and they're going to be revealed as, so, as someone who is foolish. Foolish. Because they haven't studied the right material. It's interesting. These people, many of them, <laughs> they believe a lie. Verse 25 told us that. They think they're smart. They have it all down pat. And yet such is the depth of their self-deception. How does it start? By unbelief rejecting God and seen in creation in themselves, it leads to being nothing more than prideful, God-denying, as Paul puts it here, fools. Notice it. Notice that foolishness exposed to a greater way. Look at verse 23 now. Notice what he says. Here's the progression again uh, that we've seen throughout these passages, these verses. They're unthankful. They don't glorify Him as they are. They have a foolish thoughts in mind. Verse 23, and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Letter D. We've simply titled it this way. They refuse to properly worship uh, God, electing rather to recreate him. And I like this statement, not just because I came out with it, but it's very true. Isn't this what they did? Here's the statement. The progression of the failure of man then leads him now to recreate the uncreated. To recreate the uncreated. Okay, let's take God who has always been, will always be, and we're going to recreate what he looks like. We're going to, I mean, you think about foolishness. This is foolishness expounded and, oh my goodness, man doing a great job of revealing his own. How does he do it? Well, he does it through the means of worship. Rejected, rejecting God's given means of worship for ones of their own design. Man has, as Paul has put it, changed the image of the incorruptible God into the image of corruptible, falling apart, decaying creation. 
whether that be the image of man himself, the image of beasts and animals, or even the taking of man's wisdom and philosophy and making that one's God to worship. There's a whole lot of people in this world that worship man's wisdom, that worship man-made philosophies and theories and the such. Now look ahead at verse 25 again. Notice it. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served. Now, these are great statements. Worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's a great statement. It's quite the indictment that's leveled here. They have turned the truth of God into what? What is it? Well, a lie. What is that lie? Well, simply what Paul or the truth, what is the truth that Paul has, that they have turned into a lie? Simply what Paul has already established that's been revealed. The lie is the suppression and rejection of both the existence of God and man's responsibility to honor and um, worship Him as the Creator and God that He is accountable to. So we've taken that truth, and now we've turned it into a lie. I don't have to answer to you. You are not God. There's no God there, but I'm going to take it and make this little image of God. Paul expounds or hits upon the ludicrousness of believing a lie, in this case, as, a, as opposed to the truth. And he really expresses his befuddlement in them worshiping and serving the Creator more than the Creator. Okay, now I'm going to read something for you. This is out of the Apocrypha. We certainly don't believe the Apocrypha. Apocrypha is inspired. It is much more a book of commentary and historical things, and it has issues with it as far as inaccuracy. So it's not a part of the original canon. It's, it's not inspired or anything like that. But it does give us some interesting thoughts. It's some, uh, maybe some commentary, as I said, some historical aspects about it that you have to take and compare to scriptures. Notice what it says in uh, the wisdom of Solomon in verse, in chapter 13. I, notice this description of, of what we're reading here in Romans. Verse 10 says this, but miserable are they and in dead things is their hope who called them gods, which are the works of men's hands. Gold and silver to show art in and resemblances of beast or a stone good for nothing, the work of an ancient hand. Now listen to this description. Now a carpenter that felleth timber after he hath sawn down a tree meet for the purpose and taketh off all the bark skillfully round about and hath wrought it handsomely and made a vessel thereof fit for the service of man's life. Verse 12, and after spending the refuse of his work to dress his meat, hath filled himself. What's that verse talking about? He uses the leftover of the wood that he's cut. He's used it for a fire to dress his meat, to cook it, to prepare it. In fact, I think it's Isaiah that says something similar we've studied before. Okay, Uh, notice he goes on. And then taking the very refuse among those which serve to no use. Now notice this description. Being a crooked piece of wood and full of knots, hath carved it diligently when he had nothing else to do and formed it by the skill of his understanding and fashioned it to the image of a man or made it some like vile beast, laying it over with vermilion and with paint coloring it red and covering every spot therein. And when he had made a convenient room for it, set it in the wall, 
and I like this, and made it fast with iron. In other words, he had to secure his idol to the wall so it wouldn't fall. Verse 16, for he provided for it that it might not fall, knowing that it was unable to help itself, for it is an image and hath need of help. Verse 17, this is, this is where it gets humorous. Well, I think it's already humorous, but this is where it gets even more humorous. Then maketh he prayer for his goods for his wife and children and is not ashamed to speak to that which hath no life. You ever catch yourself talking to the wall? <laughs> I hope you don't pray to it. hope you don't treat it as a God, but that's what it's saying. He goes on. Speaking of prayer, for health he calleth upon that which is weak. For life prayeth to that which is dead. For aid humbly beseecheth that which hath least means to help. <laughs> I like this too. And for a good journey he asketh of that which cannot set a foot forward. And for gaining and getting and for good success of his hands asketh ability to do of him that is most unable to do anything. That is a great commentary on idols, isn't it? The foolishness of man expounded. I, I like the, the, the very beginning verse of the next chapter. It says this. Again, one preparing himself to sail, like on a ship, and about to pass through the raging waves, calleth in prayer, calleth upon a piece of wood more rotten than the vessel that carrieth him. Isn't that good? Uh, good, good commentary. Uh, something like maybe you and I might, might write in describing it here. But the reality is, it, it's exposing the ludicrousness of it. That, that Here's man's foolishness. What is the epitome of man's foolishness? Well, evolution's certainly up there. But I think maybe greater is that man takes a piece of wood and calls it God. Something he himself creates and he carves and, and he has uses skill to, to make it in the shape of an animal or a man. And, and then he sets that up and says, bow down before your God. And that is the epitome of foolishness. Epitome of foolishness. Literally what he was revealing here. But then think of the great acts and displays of foolish men that, have, uh, that man has committed in his abandonment of God and replacement of him with false gods and idols and items of creation like animals and celestial creations, statues of man's own making. So it, it gets even worse, doesn't it? Now think about it with me. Over the time, in fact, we read much in the Bible of it. What have people done in their service? Isn't that what the verse said here? They have served and worshipped the creature more than the creator. What has happened? Well, they've, given, they, they've put their money before statues, haven't they? I mean, they leave their money there. They, they give their goods. They bow down in worship. But yet it gets much worse than that. They give possessions of great sacrifice. And we certainly know that there have been times when they have offered their own children on altars before who? A piece of stone or wood. You tell me that's not foolish. We know others too. They have beat themselves. They render themselves great pain and suffering. All for an idol. A false god. And some, we know this well historically, some have gone and killed others in the name of their false god. 
You tell me, is there anything more foolish than that? I, I, that? That you would do so much in the service and worship of something that is not real. And so it is. The foolish man, foolishness of man is exposed. Yea, more than that, it is an insult to an almighty, loving God who has chosen to reveal himself. We threw in this takeaway because I think it's appropriate here. Sorry, I should have put that up earlier. Um, uh, here's a good takeaway. There's an identifiable progression present in the life of a man who rejects God, whereby his guiltiness is further conf- confirmed. In other words, what we're saying is this. is You, you give a man enough <laughs> rope, he'll hang himself. And so he does spiritually. If his heart is darkened, he will keep progressing. He, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't glorify God. He's not thankful. And it gets worse than that. He replaces God. And then eventually, as we've seen, we talked on Sunday night, the moral restraints are lifted as the rest of the chapter's details. Um, and so this progression, and then with each step, each new choice by man, what is he doing? He, he, he's adding to his own condemnation. He's revealing his own guiltiness to a greater degree. Notice it, letter E, we, we simply put it this way. What, what, how do we sum up the resulting consequences of all these things? Well, one of the results, one of the things is found here in verse 24. Notice it, we put it this way. They render God's response. And uh, what is it? Well, the best way that Paul sums it up in his own words, he does it several times in this passage. It's this. We are living in a world that God has given up. You and I are living in a world that God has given up. Now notice what I did not add on the end. He hasn't given up on. But He has given up. What do we mean by that? Well, let's look at the verse. Verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Let's just take the very simple here first of all. The Greek term there, translated there in verse 24, God also gave them up. The Greek word uh, literally means, you'll see it here, excuse me, we'll go back here, the response of giving up, uh, obviously verse uh, letter E from the verse. That giving, they gave them up here, it means this, handing over, literally surrendering, surrendering. It means delivering to another, taking from my possession and protection and giving it to another this is not saying that god has washed his hands of mankind it's not a total and complete abandonment without love it's not saying that god doesn't care for man again but rather in their rebellion and rejection of him god has turned over he has handed over he has surrendered and delivered them uh, to experience um frankly, their own thing, the consequences of it. You see, before Burger King coined the phrase, God basically said it to mankind, have it your way. Have it your way. And what they will find, as we'll see in the passage, is that it is no way to go. In fact, the Bible declares it to be the way of what? Destruction. Death chapter here outlines the depths that sin brings man it makes bare the ugly truth of sin's degradation of one's life and as we said on sunday night again the loosening of the moral restraint in one's life and even in the culture and what it brings 
Yet we must know that this, that this divine abandonment is not eternal. As long as mankind takes breath on this earth, salvation can still be gained through Jesus Christ. This is often what God does. He, he gives people over. We see it even in church discipline. He gives them over to wake a person up, to bring them to their logical senses of seeing there is a God, of bringing them in, to a point where they see their desperate need for God and see their own inability to save themselves. It, it's interesting, and you can turn there, sake of time. I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We see a similar list here in 1 Corinthians 6 to Romans 1, verses 9 and 10. Notice this. It, it parallels much of Romans chapter 1 and the degradation of man in sin. Notice it. This is what it says, verses 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. It is very much parallel as we study the rest of Romans chapter 1 to all the things listed here. But what is the context of 1 Corinthians chapter number 6? Notice the next verse. Verse 11 here, up above me. That's not it. There it is. Okay. Uh, And such were some of you. Hmm, that's the context. And such were some of you. Here's the context. It is not the the degradation. In other words, boy, uh, the old terminology, uh, going to hell in a handbasket, the world is. I've heard that before from Paul. It's not saying, listen, what it's saying is this. There sure is hope. There sure is hope. Because such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You're justified in the name of Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And what a great promise. What, what a great truth. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 11. Oh, man, I said, I'm sorry, verse 1, 11. That's not it, 6, 11, I'm sorry. Um, what will we describe it as? Notice here, as long as a person is alive here on earth, Can I tell you, my friend, there's hope for the sinful soul. So as long as we study Romans 1, sometimes we look and say, man, this is so dire. No one can escape from this. I sure am thankful that people can. Here's back to our analogy. You know what? If someone stops in Lapeer, they can still find their way to the zoo. If someone stops in Lake Orion and Oxford, they can still make their way to the zoo. That's literally what we're saying here. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, number 6 He says, listen, my friend, such were some of us, but by the grace of God, we are who we are. It's a great truth. You see it here. We go back, and I'm sorry I skipped that. Let me go back here. You see the statement, number one, let's put it this way and describe it as such. There's a twofold meaning before us here. First of all, it's that God removes His protective and restraining hand, allowing the full consequences of man's sinful choices to run their devastating and destructive course. So the first aspect of what does it mean that God gave them up? Well, number one, it's this. He removes His protective hand. He removes it. He, he takes it away. He removes it. He, he, he stops the, the protection of them great truth and understanding of what God does here in this simple statement. Um, 
you know, one of the great truths too. <laughs> it is sin that makes salvation necessary. But it's also the reality of sin that enhances salvation to be so amazing, wonderful, and gracious. As Paul said, as such were some of you. You know why you should treasure your salvation that you have in Jesus Christ? Because of the filthy, wicked sinner you were. And I am. It, it, it makes salvation that much more precious when we understand sin for what it is. When we read Romans chapter 1 and we see homosexuality, we see even bestiality, we, we see all kinds of sin and rebellion and rejection against God here, but God can still save the soul. That's why we hand out tracts. That's why we invite people to church. That's why we're concerned for them coming to church on Easter and Resurrection Sunday. It's why we are concerned about doing outreach programs. It's why we do visitation. Because I'll tell you, my friend, you can point to the most wicked sinner around this place. God can still save them. So there's the point. There's one of the emphasis. Yes, it's God removes His protective hand, but often He removes it uh, to achieve something. Then notice it real quick. Number two on your outline there. Um, and then we'll be done. Notice it. The second idea of this giving up or giving over is that God is actively, directly, and supernaturally sending present-day judgment on unforsaken and unrepented sin. So when he says he gave over here, and these, in fact, we'll see the other two verses real quick. He, he gives a, a man over. He gives mankind over. It's to bring judgment. That now he is going to deliver the judgment himself. He gives them over to his judgment. The first one is like the consequences of their own choices. When it says he removes his protective hand, because you know what, my friend? You and I sometimes are protected by God from the consequences of some of our choices. For instance, have you ever pulled out in front of someone? Have you ever run a stop sign or a stoplight and then realized, oh, afterwards, oh, I could have gotten killed. Aren't you grateful that God protects your bad choices? I mean, you, you could give a million illustrations, and our God does that. But can I tell you, my friend, when someone has rejected God, when, when someone even backslidden, whatever the case, or they're not acknowledging the revelation of God, he'll remove his protective hand from even the unsaved. And so we know He even protects the unsaved. He lets rain fall on them as He does the just. This one here is that now we see that judgment is handed out. We see many proofs of it from Scripture. Sodom and Gomorrah. Israel's enemies that had free reign on their land and their nation. Um, one of my favorite, Elisha's servant Gehazi. For his sin, what happened? He got the leprosy of Naaman. You think of Jonah and the big fish. How about in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira? The list could go on and on. In fact, we are often reminded of this truth, what Paul is bearing out in these words simply of handing over, giving over. You and I are reminded of them after a storm or the rain, and we see a rainbow. What is God saying through that presence of the rainbow in the sky? He's saying that he will not judge the earth again in the same manner as he did Noah's flood. The flood was judgment. And he's promising you and I that that will not happen again. So yes, it's a reminder of God's promise, but that promise has to do with judgment. What did God do in Noah's day? He gave them over. He gave them over to their own uncleanness and so forth and so on as we'll see here. 
Notice it, if you will, with me. Actually, let me back up here in a second. Let's, uh, when we reject God, we sin, through, we sin through rebellion and refusal to acknowledge Him. We suffer the consequences of our sin, of our choices, but also the judgment that flows from the hand of God. It is literally a double whammy. So is God cruel in this? Let me ask you this. How many of you, when you were um, growing up, your parents didn't believe in double jeopardy? What I mean by this is, if you got in trouble in school, you got in trouble at home. Remember that? I, I remember that. I knew it. I, I knew, boy, if I ever got in trouble at school, it was going to be bad news at home. Double jeopardy did not exist, okay? The fact that you couldn't be tried twice for the same crime. Now think about it with me, okay? What did that do? Well, that created some fear and trepidation in the hearts of many. To be punished there at school, to be punished at home for the same thing, produced it in many hearts. So were your parents cruel? Were they unkind and unloving? Well, not at all. In fact, listen to me, we would say those parents took a page from God's book. That not only has God said, okay, you're going to suffer the consequences of your choices, but if you keep going the same direction and you keep following through those choices, not only will you suffer the consequences, but I will bring judgment. Now, what's the point of that? Just to add misery? No, not at all. God has a great plan for it and a reason for it, just as parents do, just as I do for my children with the same rule in our home. I think Isaiah here, verse nine, chapter 19, verse 22, says it well. And the Lord, example of dealing with Egypt. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord. And he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. Just catch all the positive consequences and results of God chastening them, God judging them. Notice it. Notice these phrases. He said what? Well, he shall heal it. He shall heal it. He goes on. He says this. They shall return even to the Lord. He shall be entreated of them. And then he says this, shall heal them. Now, we would simply put it this way. You see the last two things. Healing and restoration are two of God's ultimate goals in the dispensing of judgment here on earth. When God chastens, when God judges, whether it be a believer or even an unbeliever, His goal, His desire is to bring healing and restoration. We are well acquainted with the simple fact that there are degrees of judgment. And likewise, we see in this passage three times where that Greek word in verse 24 is used. It's a progression. Notice it, and we're done. Notice chapter 21, look it down at verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, same Greek words, all three of them. So what you see is a progression of God saying, okay, I'm going to remove my protective hand. I'm going to give you the the consequences of your choices, and then I'm going to send judgment. We'll see it borne out in this passage. And so a loving God draws people to himself, lets them get to the end of themselves. If it would help you, think of it this way, okay? Let's think I gave you a, a, a dodgeball. And I said this, okay, I want you to knock the cup of water with the dodgeball. So first thing I do is turn my back and hide like this. That's some pretty good protection. Now, some of you would enjoy way too much hitting me in the back of the head with a dodgeball. Oh, sorry, I missed. Okay, no. Okay, what if I did this? Okay, I'll do this. 
Well, not as much protection, but it's still protection. Okay, what if I do this? Eh, a little bit better. What if I were to do this? Some of you have given 50 tries, you'd hit it. What has that done? It's removed protection. Can I tell you? Listen, my friend, with choices we make, God takes away his protection. Yes, there's degrees. There's levels of it. We see it in Romans chapter 1. God gave them over. God gave them up. Or God gave them up. God gave them up. Then God gave them over. Very much the same way. What does it open a person up to? To suffer the full consequences of their choices and judgment to flow from the hand of God. Whether you're a Christian or an unbeliever, the fact is this. If we reject God in some way, pretty soon you and I will be exposed. We will suffer everything that could happen to us. And God is doing it for one desire, and that's to heal and restore a person to Him. My, we serve a great God. If He's willing to send His Son to die on a cross for you and I, He is willing to send judgment into our life to bring us back to Him. Brother Cliff, you bring those prayer requests. I ask you again.